I'm excited. This is a bittersweet Sunday, of course, for me, because we have come to the end of our long, summer-long series that we've been in uh, for the past 16, 17, 18 weeks. Uh, And after four months of journeying together through this beautiful, grand, enthralling letter known as 1 John, we arrive at John's grand finale here, and he finishes with a flourish. Um, These last verses of 1 John, I'm just gonna warn you, are challenging to wrap our Western 21st century minds around. Uh, And I gotta tell you, preparing for this this final message, it reminds me, it, it reminded me of why we, on occasion, we do a series like this, extended over a long period of time, over a a large part of scripture. It reminds me why we do this. It forces us to study a verse in its context, uh, to not just pick and choose and like skip like weird hard verses. Uh, It it forces us to to also, it reveals some really beautiful nuances uh, that might be easily overlooked. Um, But doing this, pouring over This passage for the last couple of months, I'm telling you, in preparation for this very morning, it has helped me to see things that uh, I never saw before. And I I feel like I probably would have gone my whole life missing. Uh, Because make no mistake, at first glance, these last nine verses are kind of a wild scattershot Twitter bomb of seemingly unrelated thoughts and ideas and a couple statements that make you go, wait, what now? as we just heard our favorite new British narrator, uh, he said, it, He said, but I want to summarize just really quickly what La- John launches into before he you know, signs his name, seals the envelope, and sends the owl out to the churches of Ephesus. I'm pouring out these words so you're going to believe in the name of the Son uh, of Jesus, Son of God, and have eternal life. And bonus, he says, if you ask anything of God that is, that is his will, he hears you and he grants your request That's a big matzo ball of a claim. Now, if one of your fellow church members, he says, sins, pray for them, and God promises them life. That sounds like good news. Oh, but by the way, I'm not making any promises about praying for a brother or sister who commits a deadly sin, because, you know, sin is sin, but not all sin is deadly sin. Okie dokie. On the other hand, whoever's born of God doesn't sin anyway. Okay, and in case you didn't realize that the devil still currently has power over the whole world, but we know who Jesus really is because he gives us understanding to know that he is the son of God, the source of eternal life, amen. And keep yourself from idols, P.S. Right there, it's like the records, right? See what, that's how he ends it. Um, Now here is what is awesome uh, and a little sobering. You and I could very easily take any verse from the conclusion of this letter and build an entire sermon around it. We could take a verse and build a good sermon around it, and it would be a nice, inter- a nice and interesting sermon, to be a powerful sermon, and it very likely might miss the entire point that John is making. If we did that, wouldn't it? Unless we realize that John is not just staying up late Twitter bombing like Elon Musk at two in the morning, a bunch of unrelated thoughts, right? He is actually writing this, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a brilliantly cohesive synopsis of the entire gospel in nine verses, and it is so cool. So rather than kind of do it the way I've done it before, um, kind of go through each of these verses systematically, What I want to do is show you how these words fit together, and more importantly, how they reveal even more beautifully the Jesus that we worship. And and believe it or not, the key to unlocking the mystery of these nine verses, I believe, lies in John's final words, the record scratch. Verse 21, little children, keep yourself from idols. Now, at first glance, this is a surprising way for John to end this letter that we have gone over all summer long. It almost just kind of feels like he tacked it on to the end as an afterthought. For one thing, John doesn't touch on the subject of idols in any of his writings. For another thing, there's been no hint that his readers are struggling with idolatry. 
He hasn't mentioned this. So it seems at first like a really bizarre way to conclude the letter. So why does John sum up this entire six-week-long series with this warning? I want to take kind of a, a fresh look at idolatry. That sounds fun, right? Let's look at it. <laughs> Let's get intimate with idolatry. The word idol is, is uh, often used in different ways, but in the, it's often misunderstood, I think, today, especially when we read our Bible. Today, we typically think of an idol. When I say, like, don't have any idols, don't, you know, what's the idols in your life? What do you think of? You think of those false gods. We typically bring it up like, you know, the idols in your life, like money, right? You've made money an idol, or you've made fame and fortune, or power, or something like that, you know, whatever it is, or sex, or your job, or something like that, you've made it an idol. Actually, in the ancient Near East, what an idol was, was a representation of a god. In the Greco-Roman world that this is written in, and, and throughout Israel's pagan neighbors, all the neighbors that are around here, idols weren't just viewed as false gods themselves. They were believed to be images, symbols, in some cases containers or homes for the gods. So idols were just accepted widely as a way of communicating with the gods. You, that's how you communicate with them, kind of like a portal, right? It was a little portal that you could talk to the god world through this idol. And people believed that idols were inhabited by the spirit or the presence of the god they represented. Um, they, they would obtain, they would offer sacrifices and prayers to them, and then they could obtain favor from the god. So we could think of idols as a way for ancient pagan people to, to sort of wrap their heads around the spiritual world in a way that kept their God very safely contained in a form they could manage. This is why idolatry is so condemned by Yahweh in the Old Testament. The word idol that we have today comes from the Greek word eidolon, uh, which, which means a reflection in water or a mirror. So it's a reflection rather than the real thing. It, which is a helpful way to see how they viewed their idols. Because, you know, even a pagan person would say, yes, this is an idol. They wouldn't call that a false god. They would call it an idol. It's a reflection of our God. The Hebrew word for idol has the idea of something empty or devoid of any substance. Think about this. In the Ten Commandments, anybody remember the Ten Commandments? Or a few of them? You know, if I said name them all, most of us can name like three or four maybe, right? Does anybody remember what the first two commandments are? What's the first one? Anybody say it? Right? Remember the Lord God, keep him holy, thou shalt have no other gods before him. What's the second commitment? No idols. No graven images. Those are two different commandments. Don't have a false god. Don't make an idol. So God wanted his people uh, to be the image of God in the earth. We talk about ourselves, we're image bearers of God, right? He wanted his people to be the images of God. He didn't want carved statues. And God was trying to emphasize all the way back in the very beginning to the children of Israel, who remember the children of Israel, they had lived in Egypt for 400 years. They didn't know anything but idols. They didn't have a Torah yet. There was no like laws of God that they followed while they were living in Egypt, right? There's there nothing, it's just kind of word of mouth and sort of a vague idea that the God of Abraham is for us. But all they saw and all they knew was idols. Like, that's how you worshiped the God, is through an idol. So for 400 years, this is all they know. And God is teaching them an amazing thing that had never been thought of in the whole planet, apparently. He's teaching them the inherent futility and emptiness of trying to encapsulate the infinite God within finite human constructs. Okay, this is a new idea. God didn't want his people mistaking the image for the real thing. So he has this very strong rule, don't create a graven image. He didn't want them mistaking that for God himself. You remember the famous story, the Israelites, they were newly rescued from Egypt, and they're traveling through, they cross the Red Sea, and then they get to Mount Sinai. They're at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the top of the mountain to go talk to God, you know, and there's like thunder and lightning and everything. And the, ki and the kids are down there at the bottom of the mountain, and they start to get restless. They start to get a little scared. Right, because it's like, we don't know, we don't have mom and dad here to help us, what do we do? And it says that they build a golden calf. Remember that? 
They build a golden calf. The Hebrews, it was their way of, of containing God. They were actually worshiping the only way they, they thought you, you did. The Hebrews were, their sin was because they attempted to limit God's transcendence, to, to manage the unmanageable God by confining him to a tangible form. But as we know, God is not just some other Zeus deity. He's not just one of the other gods, right? To be worshiped and manipulated for like treats and favors. That's not the way he is. He is holy and unique. He is the one, the one. And he is transcendent. He is incomparable to, to anything in creation. He's not limited by time or space or matter or human imagination. He's not limited. He reveals himself, not through you know, human-made objects, but through his words and his deeds and ultimately through Jesus. That's what makes us Christians because we believe that God ultimately revealed himself through Jesus. Romans uh, chapter 1 Paul talks about people claiming to be wise and they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human. Paul's like, how foolish is that to think we could do that? There's this battle that we wage constantly as human beings against this very human inclination to to reduce God to human likeness. We want to make God in our image. And in verse 25, he says, they exchanged the truth about God the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So to worship an idol is, I mean, it's really an insult to God's, to his majesty and his glory. It's to exchange truth for a lie. And that may be a good way to think about it. Idolatry is exchanging truth for a lie. Sometimes it's a comfortable lie, right? Idolatry is not just about worshiping false gods. That's the first commandment. It's not just about worshiping money or power or those things more than God. It's about distorting our view of the true God by trying to reduce God to something we can see and touch and control and manipulate and manage. That is idolatry. It makes God into our own image rather than recognizing that we are made in his image. Isn't that cool? In a horrible way? Yeah. So even as, uh, for Christians today, what does this mean for us? Because we don't, you know, we don't make little statues and, and then believe that God lives inside the statue, right? But we can still be guilty of this without realizing it. We can create idols by assuming that we have got God safely figured out. Right? That we know the way God thinks about everything. We know how to make him support the things that we support and make him hate all the things that we hate. How he should act when we demand it. We can even idolize like a particular you know, doctrine that we come across or an interpretation of the Bible in some spirit of arrogance. Like we have control over it. If we, if we approach the scriptures without humility. And so the sin of idolatry is not just exalting something in our life over God, which is breaking the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Idolatry is when we force the true God into a box of our own creation, when we put limits on the limitless God and boundaries on the boundless God. So how do we avoid idolatry? The first step, I think, is to realize that we're all tempted by it, right? We're all tempted by idolatry. Uh, we, have our all, we all have our own preconceived ideas about God. We all walk in through this door this morning with an idea that we have about God. And that's, that itself is not, not terrible to have an idea about God, right? We have, we have ideas about God. But we, when we try to force that God into those boundaries, and we have our comfort zones that we don't want to leave, we're not willing to leave, we're not humble enough to, to leave those comfort zones, But if we want to truly follow the God, the sublime, limitless God who is creator of the entire universe and all of of being, then we need to be willing to let go. We've got to be willing to be open to the possibility that God is maybe more than we can imagine with our little gray cells, right? The second step is to spend time in the Bible. Spend time in the Bible. Because it is through, let's go to the next one. There we actually go. 
It's through the Bible that we, we see uh, the story of God revealing himself. God reveals himself over time. And as we said, ultimately God reveals himself in the person of Jesus. But let me say a word about this. Even, even there, we have to be careful not to turn the Bible into just another idol. Did you know that? We, that's possible. Theologians refer to this as bibliolatry, okay? But learning, the, the, the key is learning to read the Bible the way Jesus read it, the way he used it, and the way he taught it, right? Understanding that even though the scriptures are our primary source of information about God, they are not God himself, but rather the Bible is like this gift that is a window through which we see God through which we see God's universe, right? It's like we wretched creatures are just trapped in this sort of room with no doors or windows, and the Bible opens all that up for us. We can see through it. The Bible is not the God that we worship. The Bible is the window through which we see the God that we worship, okay? So we see the difference there. We've said it before. The Bible isn't the fourth member of the Godhead, right? We don't serve Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, you know, there are faiths that believe that. There are faiths that have the Bible, or, or their, their holy book is more of these golden tablets that have been handed down. That would be like Mormonism believes in that, you know, or, or Islam believes in that, that there was, you know, just handed down. Um, but we see the Bible as the Bible itself records. The Bible records how it comes to us through the inspiration of God's perfect spirit through imperfect human beings, and thus the only truly perfect word of God is the one born to a girl named Mary. Amen? Who lived a perfect life and revealed for the first time the true, full character of God in all of its fullness. And so, if we ignore what Jesus was, the impact that Jesus truly was, ignore what Jesus said, and ignore what he did in favor, for instance, for, in favor of some Old Testament Bible character, if we, if we take that over Jesus, then, uh, you know, how Jesus acted, then what we're doing is cramming our version of God into an idol of ink and leather, which is bibliolatry. So Jesus himself, he comes along and he says, I know you guys have been doing this uh, for hundreds of years and you believe this for hundreds of years because of what it says in the book, but I have come to reveal the truth. How many times did he say, you know it's been said, but I say. That was a bold, that got, you know, that like got him arrested to say, I know it has been said, he's talking about the Torah, but I say, he was putting himself above the authority of Christ, the authority of Jesus above that. And, and I gotta say, that would get Jesus tossed from a lot of churches today. <laughs> For Jesus to say, uh, I know you've read this, but I say, we'd go, yeah, you can't stay here, Jesus. Right? Jesus himself, he cautions against mistaking the scriptures for ultimate authority. Over in John uh, chapter 5, he says, you study the scriptures, he's talking to the religious leaders, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life, but these are the very scriptures that testify about me, right? I've, I've said it before and I'll, I'll die on my sword. Uh, Jesus is ultimate authority, guys. Amen. Jesus is ultimate authority, right? If I'm wrong about all this and I'm standing before the throne and Jesus says, you know, you said I was the ultimate authority, but you weren't quite right about that. I think he's going to be okay with that. I think I'm going to make it into heaven, right? Jesus, I said you were the ultimate authority. Throughout his ministry, ministry Jesus constantly challenges the traditional religious uh, practices and the, and the traditional interpretations of the scriptures. Because Jesus was not just another prophet. That's what, I mean, even some of his disciples at first, they thought, hey, we're like following a cool new prophet. They slowly came to the realization, whoa, this is a paradigm shift in the way we think about everything, right? He was inviting people to look beyond the dead idolatry of their religion and experience a deeper and more intimate connection with the living God. That's a beautiful thing. What got Jesus in trouble with the Jewish authorities wasn't because he was such a nice guy. That wasn't it. It was because when they brought him sometimes, these little seemingly contradictions between the way the scriptures say things and the way he was saying and doing to try to trap him, he taught us to choose him. That's what he teaches us. That's why we are Christians. 
guys, I'm going to pick Jesus every time, and I won't apologize for it. I'm going to pick Jesus every time. The way he said it and the way he did it, what he shows us, I'm just going to pick him every time. And that's why at Generations, we preach a Christ-centered theology, you know, that, they call it Christocentric, a Christ-centered theology where Jesus becomes the lens through which we then interpret all of Scripture. So Jesus is described in, in John's Gospel in chapter 114, he's described as the Word made flesh. The Word made flesh. Hebrews tells us Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. He's the one that shows us what God is really like. Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In the Greek, it's the word icon, the image of the invisible God. That means that Jesus perfectly reflects God's character and nature. He's the one who shows us what God is like in all of his fullness. John 14 tells us Jesus is the only way to know God personally and intimately, that he is the way, the truth, and the light. It doesn't even say, you know, that the, the, the Old Testament or the Torah is the way, the truth, or the light. No, it is Jesus that is the way, the truth, and the light. And by becoming Jesus, uh, becoming human, rather, Jesus, he transcends all the limitations and the fog of, of language and cultural differences. He, trans- he cuts right through all of that and gives us a direct encounter with the divine. Shows us exactly what God is like. If we want to know who God is, we look no further than Jesus. The pastor and author Brian Zahn says it this way. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. And there has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. Now that'll mess with some of your idols. That'll make you go home at lunch going, hmm, hmm. See, when you start to see that, I promise you can't unsee it. It'll transform everything you thought about God, everything you ever believed that God thinks about you. Now listen, does uh, recognizing Jesus as ultimate authority, that does not diminish the value or the importance of the Bible. Absolutely not. Instead, what it does is help us, uh, it, help us navigate the scriptures in our study and when we get together, it helps us navigate with wisdom and discernment. The Bible is the holy, inspired witness to the perfect living word, Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible is. And I love my Bible, guys. I love my Bible. I, the more I dig into it, the more I see this, the more addicted to the scriptures, than I've ever been in my life. I love it because every word, I see more and more every word of this beautiful Bible either reveals God or reveals my need for God. That's a phrase from Melissa. I gotta give her props for that. The Bible testifies to Jesus' authority. It guides our understanding of God's character and it provides us good principles for righteous living. But our interpretation and our application of the Bible should always be filtered through the lens of Jesus' teaching and his example. Okay? Because, hey, let's not kid ourselves. As Christians, we can, you know, we can self-critique. Another way that the Bible can become an idol is when we use it to justify our own behavior. That's the sad fact. And we fully admit that as Christians, some of the worst sins committed have been done holding the Bible in one hand, right? We can justify it because this can happen because we cherry pick verses to support our own opinions or, or when we ignore verses that just don't agree with us, we just, well, let's not read that one. And, or, 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 like I alluded to earlier, we look to the Old Testament for examples of people doing unchristlike behavior so that we can feel justified in our unchristlike behavior. Or we excuse people that we like who engage in such behavior because we're, whoa, they're like the Old Testament. When we do this, we may be being a good Jew, but we're being a bad Christian. And, and we're turning the Bible into an idol. And it's a way to manage God into something we can manipulate. Okay, so we can help ourselves avoid idolatry by reading our Bibles, for understanding, first of all, we understand, yeah, we're all susceptible to it. Number two, we read our Bibles through a healthy, Christ-focused lens. Another way that we avoid idolatry is having an intimate, personal relationship with the true God through prayer. Oh, this is so key. This is so key. If you don't pray, then, then 
there's no telling what kind of crazy directions you can get into and use the Bible even, or use other things in the culture. You can let culture make your rules for you because it makes up new rules like every week. Have you noticed that? You can use that. You can use all kinds of things, but prayer is so important. Prayer is a way of communicating with God. It's, it's, it's really the primary way we have relationship with the divine God. We get to know him better through prayer. A lot of times when you pray, I find this too, a lot of times when you pray, you find out the preconceived idea you had about God that morning maybe isn't right. And through prayer, that comes apparent. Like, oh God, you know what? God, I think even the thing I was praying about might be wrong, right? I'm sensing your will in this. And we get to know God better. When we pray, we ought to be honest about our feelings. We can be honest. We can bring him our thoughts and our feelings. We don't have to hide anything from him. But we should also be willing to listen Leave some time, I call it my little shut up time. Leave some time to be quiet. And let him talk back and listen and kind of correct and mold whenever that's needed. Listen to what he has to say to us. We're told that we can go to him and we can pray boldly knowing that he hears us and delights in fellowship with us. That means we don't have to wonder, are we worthy to go to prayer? We don't have to, we can go boldly. Just like you would, your, your child can come up and give you a hug and ask you for something, right? You, would, you wouldn't be like, I don't know if you've learned that today. No, a child can come boldly, right? But we also come humbly at the same time because we leave room for his will, his, his will and his ways to take the lead in our life. As we're about to read in these closing verses, we can be confident that God hears us, right? He works for our good. And that as we pray with a humble heart, he is shaping us. He does, because he cares about you. He's not just leaving you down here to fend for yourself. He cares about shaping you. He wants to turn you into more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he's wanting to do with us. And so as we, we pray, we see the Father more clearly. We're praying that God, to, and we're praying to a God that truly is. We're not praying to an idol of our own making, Right? As you stop and listen and pray and commune, you realize who, more and more who that true God is. And here is why the Holy Spirit is so important, guys. The Holy Spirit. You know, we're a, I don't know if you, if you know, if you're visiting with us, we're a charismatic church. That's one label people use. But we're not just charismatic because we like really into like speaking funny languages and like wiggling around when we get excited. That's not why we say we're charismatic. We believe the Holy Spirit is an actual member of the Trinity and has gifted the church with his understanding and his guidance. And we see in the scriptures, it tells us to be filled, right? Be filled with the Spirit, friends. And not just once, but over and over, be being filled with the Spirit daily, which John says brings understanding. It'll keep your hearts and minds pointed at that North Star, right? Straight and true. It'll keep your focus on Jesus. It'll help you understand truth. May we never be guilty of idolatry, either worshiping false gods or trying to put a straitjacket on the living God. Amen? So, with all that in mind, John's understanding of what avoiding idolatry really means for the, Christ, for the Christ follower, having this limitless, boundless understanding of God in mind, now we can return to the top and reread quickly John's conclusion to his letter, but we can read it now with fresh eyes. So let's just kind of fly through this. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's that Zoe life we talked about in week one. The Zoe life is not the psyche life. It's the real life, not just normal everyday life that we can touch and see and build nice little comfortable categories around, but the unlimited, boundless eternal life comes through Jesus Christ, right? It doesn't come through any false God. It doesn't come through any false pursuit of, you know, pursuing happiness, riches, or anything like that, pleasure or power, or even achieving like some kind of lack of stress by avoiding all people, human contact. Some people, like that's their idea of heaven. Uh, and it doesn't come from any attempt, by the way, of, of just trying to be perfectly right and arrogant and certain in all of your airtight doctrines and systematic theologies that try to contain and understand and control God, life, 
aeon zoe, that eternal life comes from the immutable fact that Jesus is the Son of God. It's, it's almost so simple, it kind of insults our intelligence. Like we think it ought to be, this really ought to be harder. There ought to be some secret club that only really, really smart people can get into if they study really hard. But it's so simple. The most brilliant mind in the earth is not nearer to God than the person with the most childlike acceptance of that simple truth that Jesus is Lord. That's it. Jesus is Lord. Let that sink in. Jesus is Lord. And this is the boldness we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. By the way, little aside, don't let anybody tell you it's a lack of faith or it's unbiblical to make your prayers contingent on God's will. It tells us to in the Bible. John says it right here uh, to, to pray according to his will. Jesus told us when he told us how to pray, he said, pray your kingdom come, your will be done. Amen. Just before going to the cross, Jesus, what was the last, one of the last prayers he prayed was, Lord, if it be there, your will for there to be another way, make another way. So unless that person, you know, has achieved some kind of ultimate level of like enlightenment of all God knowledge that even Jesus apparently didn't have in his final moments, it's okay to pray for God's will. It doesn't show unbelief. It shows submission. And that's a good thing. Submission is a good thing. Humility is a good thing. So we can come boldly before the throne of grace and we can pray humbly, right? We submit ourselves. It shows that we trust in him to actually know what's best more than we do. Thank goodness, because I got some ideas, but they are, a lot of them are really bad. And if I just come to God and I'm like, God, this is all you got to work with, my bad ideas, make one of them happen. Oh, I'm in trouble. I am depending on God to know more than me, right? God, your will be done in this situation. Let me be courageous and let me be obedient to that, to your will. If my 15-year-old comes up to me and says, um, Daddy, if it fits in with you and Mommy's plan tonight that you had for us, you know, and it doesn't, like, disrupt everything that you had, could we have pizza I am not gonna go, how dare you question my goodness, right? Have you no faith? Right, no, of course not. Number one, I'm gonna be incredibly impressed that he was so thoughtful. And, and I'm going to, to wonder, where is my real son, you alien mimic? Um, but then I'm going to respond with one or two ways. You know what? Let's do pizza. We can make that happen, right? Or I'm going to be like, oh, buddy, we already have a plan. Everything's in place. Not tonight, right? All right. Verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the requests made of him. Listen, what did God say? Don't have idols. If you think your problem is too big or too small, too inconsequential or just too huge to bring to God, you're not talking about God. You're talking about some other idol version of a God, right? You're, not, you're talking about a false version of God because you're talking about a man-made idol of God in the world's image. Because my God says he will supply all of, my, all, all of my needs according to his riches and glory. And, and, and just in case we get like, yeah, this is awesome. God, daddy needs a three-car garage. Let's do it. Um, he immediately follows this up with what maybe ought to be one of the most primary, most natural prayers that should come from the mouth of a believer who's praying according to God's will in verse 16. For instance, if you see your brother or sister committing what is not a deadly sin, you will ask, and God will give life to such a one. What a promise. What a promise. How often, and I'm, maybe I'm just think, I'm thinking about myself, I'm not accusing you of doing this, but how often do I see somebody doing something wrong, and he's talking about believers here, right? He's, he's not talking about your unsaved neighbor or something like that. He said, if you see a believer doing something wrong, and we grumble about it, maybe we gossip about it, maybe we go to them and gripe about it, we do everything there is unhelpful except do what he says to do, which is pray about it. And he gives us a beautiful promise here that if we pray, he will bring mercy and grace and life to that situation, to that person, right? He will intervene. 
He'll bring mercy and grace, a second chance. God can change hearts and minds in a way that you and I can never accomplish, not with all of our airtight arguments, right? Even the most passive-aggressive meme I sent to them on Instagram doesn't work. I've tried. It just doesn't work, right? I've never seen a person's mind changed by anything I sent to them on Facebook. It just doesn't, right? But I have seen people won over by love, which is why prayer is so effective, because it's really an act of love to pray for somebody. You're taking time to pray for this person, to bring their name, their face before the Lord. That's an act of love, and God honors that. Now, real quick here is this next part. You probably noticed a little phrase in there that's caught in your throat. There's this next part that gets all the theologians today all scratching their heads and wrestling with John's meaning. And I don't, I don't think it's that complicated. Uh, the reason is because I don't think John was being weird and confusing. Actually, if you and I were first century Jewish Christians reading this or hearing this letter read to the church, it would actually help clear things up, right? So here it is in a nutshell. We'll have a chance to wrestle a little more with this in our home life groups this week, so a little tag for that. He says, pray for a brother or sister committing to sin and God will give life to those whose sin is not deadly. There is a sin that is deadly. I'm not saying you should pray about that. Hmm. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that is not deadly. Okay. Begs the obvious question, what is this deadly sin? Is this like the sin of unbelief? Is it a blasphemy? What's a sin that is not deadly? Why is it deadly? And what's a sin that is not deadly? Like, so there's like lesser sins that are not deadly. I was told growing up that all sin was sin, right? It was just sin. And why can't we pray for the deadly ones? And aren't we supposed to pray for unbelievers to come to Christ? Okay. This phrase, deadly sin, I have studied this to death. See what I did? Uh, here's, here's what I believe that John is referring to based on the context of this, this verse. And again, reading this in context, the whole chapter, the whole letter, what has God, John been talking about this whole time? Based on this, as well as other scriptures in the Bible, it tells us to pray for others, for our enemies, pray for unbelievers, pray for church members, family members, as well as the thousands of scriptures that speak about God's limitless mercy and his love and grace for every single one of us. First of all, notice who he's talking about. Christians. He says brothers or sisters. So that's interesting. He's not talking about your unbelieving neighbor. So there's a deadly sin. Literally, it's a sin unto death. A sin unto death. Meprosthanaton in the Greek. It sounds very cool. A sin unto death that even a Christian might commit. Fellow believers, someone who shares the same faith and love as I do. So what is that? And why doesn't John say to pray about it. Here's my long story short. I don't think he's talking about spiritual death. And uh, there's some commentary that backs that up. I think he's talking about physical death. Literal, actual, committing sin that has real world consequences. Why? Because number one, all sin, not just the really bad ones, all sin leads without Christ to spiritual death. Without Christ, we're doomed. We are humbly dependent upon the cross for salvation. Not just the really bad people. All of us. It says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? So without the cross, we're all hope without hope. John himself says in this very letter back in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for all our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. He says back in chapter 1 of this letter, in verse 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there can't be some kind of special kind of sin that makes you a sinner, like the other sins don't make you a sinner, but this one does. Because all have sinned, all have come short of the glory, but his love and grace and forgiveness covers all. However, some sin can have irreversible consequences in this life. That seems pretty obvious when you think about it, right? John most likely here is referring to sins that are that are fatal, that are punishable by death according to the law of Moses, his readers. Remember, John is reading, he wrote this, he didn't read this, write this letter to us, but it is for us. But he was read, writing to Jewish Christians in the first century. So his readers would have immediately thought of these sins because it's the exact same phrase used in the Old Testament when speaking about them, sins unto death. 
The same phrase is used in the Old Testament. Well, that makes it a lot simpler to understand this. And these were thought of as capital offenses or sins that, you know, the wages of which the, the are inevitably fatal, they're self-destructive sins. So notice John also isn't saying that God won't have mercy on the souls of these folks. But there isn't the same promise that they will be delivered from the consequences of their actions, okay? So they may still have to suffer the wages of, of their sin, right? You murder somebody, you get convicted, Jesus loves you, you can still go to heaven, but you're still going to prison, right? You don't get to go, it's okay, judge, I just got saved. It just doesn't work. There's consequences. There's some consequences, right? Notice also, he doesn't forbid us to pray for these things. He's just saying there's not the same guarantee. There's not the same promise that they won't suffer the mortal consequences of their sin. Uh, just a couple of folks that are smarter than I am, so you can know I didn't make this up. J.W. Hansen says, the sin unto death has often been supposed to be the unpardonable sin, so called as though any sin could be unpardonable by a God whose mercy is without limit and without end. Amen. The apostle John, however, is alluding to the various offenses under the Jewish law, some of which were unto death or capital offenses, while others were less heinous. Uh, the great Thomas Horne says, the Talmudical writers have distinguished the capital punishments of the Jews into lesser deaths and such as were more grievous. The capital crime generally was termed a sin of death in Deuteronomy 16 or a sin worthy of death, Deuteronomy 21, which mode of expression is adopted or rather imitated by the Apostle John who distinguishes between a sin unto death and a sin not unto death in 1 John here. Eleven different sorts of capital punishment were, are mentioned in the sacred writings. There we go. Um, now, I'll also say this too, and, and I, by the way, I'm not saying like this is, uh, you have to like agree with me or we can't be in fellowship or something like that. There's a lot of good, smart people who have different takes on this, and that's cool, and that would be awesome to talk about in your home life groups, um, but this is where I have come to understanding about this, and I'll say this. We see from Scripture, and I want to say this really carefully, but we see from Scripture that there are on, on rare occasions, there's a point, there may be a point where the destructive consequences of a Christian's actions may get to a point where the most loving thing that God can do in his wisdom for that child of his is to remove his hand of protection from them. Not smite them, right? We don't believe in a God who does that. But to remove the hand of protection, to sort of let them meet the inevitable end, right? As a parent, we call that tough love. That's tough love. Sometimes it is more merciful for God to just stop playing defense against all the things that the person is hurting themselves and others with and let them come on to heaven where he can heal them completely. Amen. Now that's a gospel according to Scott there. But the point for us is that we should not get caught up. We shouldn't get our caught up in, in judging whether some fellow believer has committed a uh, sin unto death or not. That's really not up for us to decide because even John doesn't like go into a lot of explanation. What do we do? We pray for them and we let God sort it out. We pray for them, God sorts it out. Amen? Look what John says next. We know that those who are born of God do not sin. Well, what the heck, John? <laughs> We, you just got us tied up in knots. We're arguing about Christians who sin, right? <laughs> well, fear not. John is not contradicting himself. Uh, we just don't speak Greek. That's the thing here. Yeah. In the original language, John uses a very specific, unique grammatical construction, this verb tense. And, and some of your Bibles might even say it if you're reading along. Some of your translations might say it better to continue sinning. And it's a habitual lifestyle of sin. He's not saying that Christians don't sin because he just said they did in verse 16 and we can pray for him. We can pray for each other. But there's a promise here that it, we don't have to be slaves to the same sin over and over. Amen? We have a victory that has been won by the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. So don't limit what God can do for you. If you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm just a failure in this one area and I guess I'll always be. Don't underestimate what God can do. That's idolatry. You're putting him in a box, right? 
Throw away the box that you've, you've crammed God into all these years and watch how much bigger he can get right before your very eyes, more, bigger than your sin. Watch him. The one who was born of evil, this is Jesus. So he talks about the ones, those who were born of God, that's us. And then the one who was born of God, that's, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, born of God, this is Jesus. The one who was born of God protects them and the evil one does not touch God's children. Even though, Yes, we know that the whole world still lies under the devil's power and and authority in this age. Yes, friends, there are still two kingdoms in existence right now. There are the empires of this earth and this culture and this age, which really are just puppet regimes of the same empire. It's the demonic realm where the devil rules over for a little while longer. It's the world of evil and suffering and injustice and greed and cancer and all those things that you were, I were born into. But we have been snatched by the hand of God into a whole new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. And even though we live in this world, we are not of it. Amen. We are image bearers. We are ambassadors. We are evangelists. We are good news declarers of a whole nother kingdom that exists right here in the midst of this old dead one. It's a kingdom without borders. It's a kingdom without boundaries or checkpoints or passports. It extends from one end of this planet to the other end. It's a kingdom that exists in the heart of every single believer who follows Christ, regardless of their color, their language, their nationality. It's a kingdom that expands its Influence whose steps of whose boundaries expand with every step you take in your workplace, in your school, and in your neighborhood. It's a question about allegiance here. These people, those of us born of God, now belong to his family. And we are no longer forced to self-identify with the pattern of sin. We don't have to identify with those old sins, Right? We're not under the control of the evil one. We have been adopted by God. We are free from any claims of the world. The domain of the devil. That's not our world, it's not our daddy anymore. We've been adopted. And we know, this is the third time he says, and we know by the way, that's fascinating. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. How do we get, as that happened Through the Holy Spirit, right? And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Three times he repeats the word true because he wants us to see the real authentic God, not the little man-made inventions People have come up with. John wants us to see so badly the truth of who Christ is and to reject the lies of the world and of false religion, all the just false petty ideas about who God is. And so, in light of this, in light of all this boundless power of God of of the universe, the boundless mercy that he has for every single one of us, the boundless grace and extravagant love that he's just got done revealing to us and that Jesus reveals up on the cross, he says, little children. I love that he uses the same phrase. He goes back to that endearment he used at the very beginning of the letter. He bookends it. Keep yourself from idols. Don't limit God. Don't put him in a box. Don't get your mind all muddled up in some man-made view of some comfortable little deity that you can control and manipulate. Put your faith in the true God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who can do all that you ask and more, who can make all of his will come to pass for you, and he wants an intimate relationship with you. Never stop praying to that God. Never stop trusting in this God. Never stop expecting to be surprised by this God because he is Lord of all and he is worthy of your hope and your trust. He's worthy. May we have the courage to see these things and may we continue to trust Jesus, to study 
his teachings, to obey his teachings so that we can represent him well in this world. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful for everything that you give. Every moment of our existence, Lord God, you are continually giving and pouring out into our life. We're grateful, Lord God, that you are patient with us even when we are caught up in illusions of, of what's going on around us, illusions of who you are. We are grateful, Lord God, that your love penetrates even through those illusions, Lord God. And so, God, we ask you today, strip away all the things around us, Lord God, that make, make it confusing and difficult to see with clarity the simple, indisputable, undoubtable, immovable, indestructible, boundless foundation of your love, that blissful love. Thank you, Lord God, for speaking to us today. And in your holy name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. My friends, the letter of First John. Here we go. <laughs> well done, John. Here's where we would roll up the scroll, right? Uh, I want to say thank you too to all of my friends who, who helped teach this series over these past months. Uh, Debbie and Derek and Zach uh, and Brenna and Lauren and my beautiful wife, Melissa. And I hope this has been a blessing uh, for you these 16 weeks. It has been such a blessing for me. Um, next week, we're going to start on something fresh and new. It'll be great. And in two weeks, we've got Ivan Tate is going to be here both morning and the night. So you don't want to miss that. He moves in the spirit so beautifully. And I just encourage you to be here with us for that. Amen. We stand to your feet as our prayer partners are coming forward. If there's anything that uh, we can pray with you about, anything you're believing for God for, any person you're believing for God uh, to move in the heart of or anything like that, Lord God, he says that we can come and we can pray. We can pray and he hears our prayer. What's that? Yes, yes. And so I encourage you to come forward. Don't leave without prayer. And uh, my, my brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be merciful to you. May he lift his countenance and shower you this week with grace and peace. Amen. We have a baptism that's happening right after the service right over here. You're welcome to stay and celebrate with those folks who are going to be getting water baptized for the first time. Bye-bye.